Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi and I'm sorry there's been such a long wait for this episode. Soho Bites now has an annoying younger sibling podcast called Mural Morsels, which sucks all the attention. But I finally managed to fob it off with an ice cream to focus on this episode of Soho Bites. But do check out Mural Morsels anyway. It goes out every Friday morning on the Soho Hour on Soho Radio. And you can find it afterwards at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash Mural Morsels. This is the third and final part of our mini-series all about the famous and fabulous Windmill Theatre. In a couple of minutes, we have the last instalment of my conversation with former Windmill Girl Jill Millard-Shapiro, in which she talks about the final days of the mill. If you missed the previous two episodes, don't worry, this is the internet. They're both still there, like your browsing history. So I'd recommend you listen to episodes 13 and 14 first. In those, Jill talks about the early days of the theatre and her time there in the late 50s and early 60s. There have been four films made about the Windmill Theatre over the years, and we've talked about three of them in previous episodes of Soho Bites. In the second half of this episode, we're looking at our fourth one, although it was actually the first to be made. Strangely, though, this first ever film about the Windmill Theatre was not made on these shores. From 1945, it's Tonight and Every Night, starring Rita Hayworth, and it's a big, glitzy Hollywood portrayal of that venerable old British institution. Talking of venerable old British institutions, Adam Roach from the Secret History of Hollywood podcast makes a return visit to the show to talk about Tonight and Every Night with me, so please get comfortable and hang around for that. A few weeks ago, I travelled out to Essex and spent a delightful afternoon with Jill Millard-Shapiro. Jill is a member of an exclusive club, former Windmill Girls, who performed in the theatre's long-running and ever-changing show, Review de Ville. In the history of the Windmill Theatre, Jill appeared towards the end of it and only left Great Windmill Street a few months before the theatre finally closed its doors for good in October 1964. After the death of the Windmill's legendary producer, Vivian Van Damme, in 1960, the reins were passed to his daughter, Sheila, who up until this point had been a rally car driver. But by this stage, London, and Soho in particular, was a very different place from the one in which Revue began, and the show was approaching the end of its natural life. 
In previous episodes, Jill mentioned some of the key personnel at the windmill, including Johnny Gale, the stage manager, Laura Henderson, who began the whole thing with Vivian Van Damme back in 1932, and Van Damme's right-hand woman, Anne Mittell. I began this segment of the conversation by asking Jill about another very important person at the windmill, choreographer Keith Lester. Oh, Keith Lester. I believe he was quite an intimidating person. Yes. Could you tell me a little bit about him? Keith was <laughs> master of the one-line put-down. He used to flare his nostrils and draw his breath in and puff his chest out and tell you off. Really? <laughs> oh, yes. A lot of girls were, didn't, didn't really like him, but I think... I realised quite early on that really what I was learning from this man was incredible. But a lot of girls didn't get on with him particularly, but I did. To the point when, when I was going to get married, and because he knew classical music, I asked his advice about what music to use in the church, so he gave me a list of things. So he actually chose my wedding music for oh, me. Nice. <laughs> um, um, so, yes, yeah, so Keith was intimidating, definitely. Every show had a one ballet scene. Sometimes they'd be a nude in the background of the ballet, but often not. Just one ballet scene. Um, he choreographed that, and he choreographed the fan dance, which was an amazingly intricate, difficult dance to do. The only nude allowed to move on the Windmill Theatre stage was the principal fan dancer. But that's because she was covered by giant fans, huge, great big ostrich feather fans. As she moved her fans, the girls on stage, also with large ostrich feather fans, would cover the nude. So as one fan moved, another one took its place very quickly. Mm. And this was a whole choreographed routine. So it was very intricate. Now those fans could interlock. If the girl was a bit late and you were moving yours and that one was a bit late coming in, they could interlock. Then another girl would have to give the principal her fan, go off and get another one. Okay. <laughs> it was, you know, if anything happened so disastrous as that, most of the time it didn't because it was so well choreographed, so well rehearsed yeah. that we all knew what to do. And it was extremely beautiful to watch. Principal fan dancers, that was, you'd reached a certain level, had you, by the time you got yes. to... Yeah. And you did become a principal fan dancer, didn't I you? I was a principal fan dancer quite early on. But there was Rob Ronald Bryden wrote in The New Statesman in, on the 16th of October 1964 that he'd been to the windmill because he'd never been. He wanted to see it before it closed. So 16th of October, so that's like a fortnight before it closed, yes. basically. He, yeah. he, he went to see the show. He was rather impressed with the principal fan dancer, who was a girl called Serena Armitage. And this is what he wrote. Serena carried two huge white wafers of plumes, one front, one back, and nothing on between. The other girls were dressed and carried black and red fans the same size. When Serena swung a fan aloft, a red or black fan would take its place. The girls passed her around the stage as if with huge feathered tongs. Most of the time she was swathed in plumage from shoulder to instep, looking like Ginger Rogers in an old musical. At the end, the lights turned rose red behind her. The great white fans parted and she posed for a moment, silhouetted in the nude. It was lovely. That's a, a jaded journalist. Yeah. yeah, you'd think an old, an old hack yes. from the <laughs> Fleet Street. <laughs> from the Street New Statesman. Be, yeah. That's nice. I know. No, he, he, he really wrote beautifully about that show. I think he was more impressed than you, he might have imagined he was going to Denise be. Denise Betts to be, yeah. yeah. As far as I know, there are four films about the windmill. Oh, dear. There's Miss Henderson Presents. Yes. 
There's quite a terrible one from 1966 called Secrets of a Windmill Girl. Don't, I won't talk about that because I'm in it. <laughs> Are you in that? <laughs> yes. Oh. Well, we didn't know that it was going to be a bad film. No, because it was... Just, me well, and Pauline Collins, I mean, let's face it, and very good names in that film. Yeah, Martin Jarvis is there. I know, and, yeah. and he was lovely. We, we were just given little scenes and scripts, not knowing what the main storyline would be. So in the audition scenes or something, or...? Yes, I was in those okay. audition scenes... How can I explain it? In the beginning, it started out as it was going to be a documentary. Yeah. So we did the documentary bits, or dramatised documentary bits. We had no idea that we were going to turn it into this stupid film about drugs and God knows what else. Yeah. We didn't know Fallen that. Fallen girls. And yeah, ridiculous. That never happened. So, yes, I mean, <laughs> and I know that Pauline Collins hides under the table every time it's mentioned. <laughs> Yeah, we talked Imagine. about it in an early episode of the programme, actually, and then yeah. they strung it together to ghastly. make a film. Yeah, it's yeah film. really ghastly. So there's that. There's yeah. uh, Forget that one. Yeah. No, don't um, like that one. There's The Murder at the Windmill from 1949. <laughs> yes, I like that one. That is a good one, isn't it? It's Well, it's terrible, really. It's not a good film. But for anyone who was at the windmill, we love watching it because Johnny Gale, the stage manager, plays himself. The right. little round fat person in the Argyle sweater. Yeah. And he's really good at playing himself. But Van Damme wanted to play himself in that film. He wanted to do it. And he failed his audition <laughs> because he was told he was too wooden and not realistic. <laughs> he said, but it's me. Was he offended by that? Yes. <laughs> I, th I think it caused tremendous trouble with, with him and his son-in-law <laughs> because... Um, Angel, who produced it, um, was married to Van Damme's daughter. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So Danny Angel was his son-in-law. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's an interesting link. Um, and the, the, the fourth film that I can think... There may be more, but I, I'm not sure that there is, is this Rita Hayworth one, um, yeah. Tonight and Every Night. Yes. <laughs> which apparently Van Damme didn't like. I don't think... It wasn't that he didn't like the film or Rita Hayworth... He was really annoyed that they dared to make a film about his theatre without asking his permission. Yeah. Well, of course, they didn't have to. They didn't need his permission. No. <laughs> <laughs> of course they didn't. Um, but I think that film, I think why he was annoyed as well, the author of the play Tonight and Every Night that was on in Broadway, he'd allowed her to stay in the windmill at night with the windmill girls during the Blitz. So she had that feel and that... So then she, the show gets put on on Broadway. Then Hollywood picks it up and makes a film with Rita Hayworth. And he was annoyed because nobody asked him right. for his permission. So when he wrote his book, he thought he'd get one back and take their title, which, of course, didn't affect anything. It's rather amusing, isn't no, it? No, it actually it, it <laughs> kind of, it promotes the film I'm, as well. I'm so angry, I'm going to use the title. Oh, yeah. bless him. I think the film, uh, that film, I, I didn't particularly like. I think it has some great moments. It does, yes. It, they made it a bigger theatre than it was. Yeah. Um, the outside they made little and the stage they made too big. Yeah. But, yeah, there are some scenes in it that are very similar to The Windmill. Okay. Some of the dancing, the, the scenes, yes. And I just like anything that's to do with it. Anything like that does have a familiarity to anyone who worked at The Windmill. So we don't mind few liberties here and there. Yeah, it took yeah. a few. So let's go on towards the end of... Uh, so you weren't there at the end of the... No, I, my daughter was born in May 
1964, and it closed in October. Okay. I did take her up there as a baby in arms, um, so I saw a few of the girls and came away again, but, you know, I wasn't there on the last night. If it carried on, was there a possibility of going oh, back? Oh, yes. Um, you, so you would have gone back when yes, the, the daughter was a certain few, age? There were a few married girls with children. Okay. So that's mm. quite, a, that's quite progressive, though, isn't stay, it? If you worked at that theatre under any umbrella, whether you were a dancer, a singer, worked in the canteen or whatever, if for some reason you could no longer dance, they would give you a job somewhere else in the theatre. Mm. Um, one of the boys, Derek, he he was getting on a bit in age, and he said, I, I'm no longer any good as a windmill boy, and they put him in the wardrobe. Right. He became in charge of wardrobe. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, Why not? Great, yeah. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. Um, another girl, she was one of the windmill girls of the year, actually, and she had to look after her ageing mother. And Van Damme employed her as his assistant, doing what we never knew, but just as his assistant. So they'd find niches for you everywhere. There'd always be anybody loyal. If The loyalty there was tremendous. That was, it was amazing. A brilliant place to be. Yeah, it was lovely. Sounds almost like a kind of um, uh, what do they call them? It's a beneficial society. Yes, benevolent society. The windmill yeah. benevolent society. Yeah. I know. I know. The closure stores finally on Halloween, nineteen sixty-four. Oh, yes, yes. Were you aware that it was in its final few years? I think the word you used was doomed. <laughs> yeah. I, I, if, when you said to me, "Did you know it was doomed?" and no doomed or, or that sort of ominous feeling was never with us because if you think of it in the same way as you'd say well this show had run for 32 years its formats didn't change it was coy it was twee the little tap dance routines with one girl one boy little duets little songs um all that kind of thing was dated mm. it was out of date mm. it had got old-fashioned. Did it feel and, it at the time? Yeah, we knew. Yeah. Doing these little tap dances and things, rock and roll was happening. Yeah. You know, the world had changed. You know, everything was was slightly different. But it wasn't that we were aware that it was sort of doomed. It, we knew, really, that it was like an old lady who needed to retire. I think there's an idea that the, the rise of strip clubs and Paul Raymond stuff killed the windmill. But from what you're saying, oh, it Paul seems Raymond to be that, that it was he... already... Yeah, on its way out because yes, it was of dated. It was. And yes. Were you aware of Soho and the surrounding area becoming more kind of sleazy and well, strip clubby? And you'd, walking around Soho, you'd, you'd see the clip joints and the strip clubs, and you'd see pictures of Miss or the top heavy Miss Fifi La Boom Boom around yeah. the corner, <laughs> able to shake it all about, whereas we had to stand completely still. <laughs> <laughs> what, what we had to offer wasn't very sexy, really. <laughs> but then people went for a different thing, didn't they? If, I mean, yes, it, it was know. a review theatre mm. with some nudes at the back and one fan dancer. That was pretty much it. So you know, the the fan dance they never saw very much until the final reveal at the end, and that was so quick that you think, oh, it's a bit unfair, really. They waited all that time. Yeah. Um, and none of us, nobody that I know, would have changed what we did could have modernized it a bit perhaps but you certainly not as far as the sex or the nudity so in that sense no we didn't feel anything bad but also um slightly to paraphrase that same journalist who also wrote about the closure and he said 
the windmill had afforded its audience honest, remote fantasy. It had talked their language, sung them the old songs, and let them meet that family of nice young bodies. It's an old show now. It might as well close. And I think that's very, very true. It wasn't a disaster that it closed. It was time. So Jill left the windmill to look after her baby daughter, and shortly afterwards, not unexpectedly from the sounds of it, the curtain came down on Revue de Ville for the final time. It's nearly 56 years since that happened, and in the intervening years, Jill continued to live a very full life, the details of which I simply can't include because of limitations on time. But I can say that she spent many years travelling the world with her second husband, Milton J. Shapiro, working as a photojournalist, And at the last count, she had four grandchildren and seven great-grandchildren who were born, she pointed out to me, without her permission. The damn cheek of it. It was a privilege to spend some time with Jill hearing about her life in the windmill and she has my infinite thanks for agreeing to come on the show. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. One of the Broadway shows that Columbia Studios optioned at some point in 1942 was a play called Heart of a City by Scottish writer Leslie Storm. It ran for a disappointing 28 performances at Henry Miller's Theatre, which has since been renamed the Stephen Sondheim Theatre, and it's not the only theatre to be renamed in this story. Despite its short run on the stage, somebody at Columbia saw potential in the play and it was given a whole new lease of life when they decided to throw some big money at it, put a big star in the lead role and put it on the big screen under the new title of Tonight and Every Night. It was eventually released, in the UK at least, only a fortnight before D-Day. The film follows the lives of some of the performers at a small West End theatre called The Music Box at the height of the London Blitz. In the establishing shot of the theatre exterior, we see that it bears the slogan, We Never Missed a Show, which is pretty similar to the windmill slogan, We Never Closed. In fact, if there's any doubt at all that the music box is the windmill, that doubt is surely dispelled by Jill's revelation in her interview just now that the author, Leslie Storm, was given permission by Vivian Van Damme to spend time backstage with the windmill girls during the months of the Blitz as part of her research. It's easy to see why the bigwigs at Columbia thought this film would be a safe bet. The idea of plucky, brave little Britain standing up to the tyrannical might of Germany had caught hold in the US, partly through the power of some spine-tingling radio broadcast by Norman Corwin, and by January 1945, when the film received its US premiere, there were over a million American service personnel stationed in the UK, many of whom caught the odd show or three at the windmill. So the choice of Rita Hayworth the US military's favourite pin-up girl to play the lead role of Roz was an obvious one, a surefire winner. At this point in her life, incidentally, Rita Hayworth was married to Orson Welles and at the start of filming was pregnant with their daughter Rebecca. 
For this reason, the dance scenes were all shot at the start of production, before the pregnancy began to show, and certain later shots in the film were composed in a way that disguised her expanding midriff. Although names and places are changed and certain liberties are taken, there are several aspects of the windmill that the film seeks to portray fairly closely to reality. There's a matriarchal Mrs. Henderson-type character called Mrs. Tolliver, played by Florence Bates. But as there is no equivalent to Vivian Van Damme in the film, perhaps another reason he disliked it, Mrs. Tolliver becomes a composite of the two. The film also has a bash at portraying one of the cabaret acts of the type the windmill used to put on between the musical numbers. This comes in the form of a comedy xylophonist called The Great Waldo, which I think is fair to say is not a high point. The very successful English producer and sometime director Victor Saville was brought in to direct the film and Hayworth is supported by Janet Blair as best friend Judy, Lee Bowman as her love interest Paul and Mark Platt plays Tommy, a young lad from Manchester who just loves to dance. Adam Roach is a podcaster and the brains and voice behind the Attaboy Clarence podcast and the Secret History of Hollywood podcast so I could think of no better person to talk to about tonight and every night. Certainly not one who would do it for free anyway. So I called him up on Skype. Adam Roach. Hi. I sent you the film, Tonight and Every Night. Mm -hmm. You were unfamiliar with it before. You're very welcome. (laughs) You were unfamiliar with it before. You're now very familiar with it. I don't do out of 10 ratings on this programme, but what's your out of 10 rating for this film? Five. Five, okay. Straight down the middle, yeah. Okay. And your first impressions of it were (laughs) that it was... Abysmal, yeah. It's um, the first time. <laughs> get straight in there. Yeah, it's it's a film I had to try and had to power through twice to get through it. Um, for those of you who haven't seen it, it has just a very weak first act. That's all. You sort of open and there's characters just flung at you for a good half hour. Flung at you. You get you know the impresario lady. You have the cleaner man. You have the showgirl. You have the interviewer who just weirdly disappears. And then you have the the soldier and the, the dancer with aspirations and it just comes at you for the first half hour you're going what am I focusing on I don't understand is this just theatre life because I'm not sure I really need a film about this because it goes into flashback do you want to um, give yeah. me a quick run through of the plot until any spoilers would be inappropriate so it's basically it follows life at a theatre called The Music Box which is a, a thinly veiled version of the Windmill Theatre, is that right? I don't think it's that thinly veiled at all. It's, um, it's obviously yeah. the Windmill Theatre. You have a showgirl called Roz, played by Rita Hayworth, and you have her friend Judy, played by Janet Blair, and it's sort of hard to know how the story really begins, you know? It's sort of, you, it, they're just sort of like dancing away, and a new dancer comes in, and apparently he's Mancunian, <laughs> and he auditions... <laughs> It's the worst accent I've it ever seen. It is the one. worst accent. I, as a Mancunian, I'm trying not to take offence at his accent, but he doesn't even make an attempt at an accent. Are you Mancunian? I am Mancunian. Oh, I couldn't tell from your accent. Could you not? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start calling you Mark Platt from now on. I I hated his character. I thought he was awful. I just wanted, Every time he was on stage screen, I was just like putting a hand in front of, you know. The, Do you not like Mancunian? Is that your problem? <laughs> All right, Katie Hopkins. Um, no, um, yeah, I just didn't like his character at all. I found him, ugh, just go away. His whole thing is he doesn't follow moves and he's very improvisational and he, he dances around to looms, up at Mill in Lancashire 
Um, <laughs> and uh, he dances to Hitler and Mussolini's speeches. That moment is just weird. It's like, you know, she's um, to test him out. She, she flicks on the radio, doesn't she? Sam, bring me your wireless. Move back, girls, and give him room. Young man, the stage is yours. Thank you. There's a bit of Bach playing, or, you know, a bit of classical music playing, there's a bit of jazz playing. And, and he sort of leaps into different routines, and then she flicks through, and Hitler's giving a speech. And she flicks past him. And says, no, 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 I like dancing to, oh, no, to no, him. Oh, no, leave it alone. I often dance to him. And she leaves it on, and he does this weird, like, dictatorial, marchy ballet, you know, interpretation. To hit the speech, Which, it sort of has to be seen to be believed. You can't, you can't say it's bad, but you just watch it and go, "Why?" Yeah. <laughs> so basically, um, the the theatre life just sort of rolls on by until um, some visiting soldiers arrive. Are they American soldiers? They are British RAF airmen. Okay, so so Lee Bowman's supposed to be British in this. Yes. I didn't get that until this very moment in time. He literally doesn't even try, does he? No, I think this is the thing about... I was going to talk about accents later, but the the, the accents throughout the film are pretty much all American. It makes the film impossible to play. So you have Rita Hayworth, who's American. I mean, she's playing an American, which is okay. She is playing an American, you're right. She's from St. Louis, that's right. It's part of the um, plot, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Janet Blair is her best friend. She's supposed to be English, though, right? She is, although I was reading a, reading about it on IMDb or something, it said follows the exploits of two American showgirls. But actually, Janet Blair is supposed to be British. She, she does one of these exaggerated vowels that Americans mm. do when they're trying to do a British accent. So she says, bath, bath. Um, <laughs> I think, oh, that's a giveaway. So there you go. So you have an American visiting American showgirl and an English, in brackets, showgirl. Um, then you have uh, uh, an English uh, accountant turned dancer, played by Mark Platt, who's an American ballet dancer who does this accent. It just has to be heard to be believed. It's it's um, it's almost like he doesn't bother. And then every other sentence he goes, oh, I'm so seeing Mancunian. I better drop in an ooh or an ah. <laughs> you know, and that's literally all he does, isn't it? And then you've got Lee Bowman, who's an RAF man, who doesn't even bother at all. He's like, hi, how are you doing? Yeah. So um, I must admit, first time I watched this, I found it impossible. I didn't know if it's supposed to be set in America, set in England. So anyway, the story is of uh, Lee Bowman falling in love with Rita Hayworth and messing it up to begin with. And then them coming together, but the problems of the war um, are keeping them apart and keeping their relationship sort of... It's on tender hooks, isn't it? Because she doesn't know, uh, you know, if ever he's going to come back from missions and things. Yeah. It's a bit of a weak story. It's a know, weak it's... story, yeah. Put it into context of its time, because it was based on a play that had run on Broadway, quite a short run on Broadway, I think less than uh, just a few months, called... Heart of a City. Called Heart of a City, well done. Mm. So it was obviously made during the war, and it's in flashback. Yes. Yeah, I should have said that at the beginning. So basically, uh, there's a reporter, and he is backstage at the windmill, and um, he's doing an article, and Rita Hayworth, you know, is sort of fleetingly takes photos and gets back on stage again. And he talks to the stage manager guy. Yes, Sam. Who says, you know, you there is a great story behind her being here now. And then it just dissolves into flashback and it tells the story. Oh, God. I don't want to be too mean about it because I did enjoy parts of it. Yeah, let us think... um, let me see if I can get, draw some positivity out of it. Yeah. Um, 
Cool. So there must be something uh, positive about it. I mean, what do you think of the performances? What do you think of the the musical numbers? Did you like the musical numbers? There is one. Here's a newsreel made strictly for smiles and dedicated to the British Isles. Where Janet Blair sings Tonight and Every Night, you've told me that's the title tune. I think that's the title of it, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so um, basically um, she comes on stage and the curtains sweep back and they play a, a newsreel and it's shots of London and shots of, like, you know, English life, basically, and she sings to the newsreel and every now and then, you know, she beckons to someone in the newsreel on a busy London street to, to come and join her, basically. And, and the whole song is basically these real people stepping out of the newsreel and onto the stage with her until the stage is filled with people from all walks of British life and and it's quite patriotic and really quite stirring and I, I thought that was absolutely brilliant um, and the way they've done it I mean obviously you know you can tell how they've done it but to, to stage something like that It's interesting that the musical number that you picked out as the one that was really good. Mm-hmm. Interesting that that is sung by, not by Rita Hayworth, not by the lead, not by the person mm. at the top of the poster, but by Janet Blair. And I thought she was good, Janet Blair. I, re- I thought she was the best thing in it, really. Yeah, she is totally the best thing in it. And the, I, the Rita Hayworth number that everyone uh, picks out from this one is... Um, you Excite Me. Yeah. yeah, where she does that, you know, she's wearing... You know, very little clothing, and she's sort of, you know, you excite me, and it's all very exotic and stuff. And that, I see that number turn up on clip shows and things, and you know, documentaries about her quite a lot. But it's um, it's, it's standard stuff. It doesn't really add to the story in any way. It's you know, after about eight minutes of it, you're thinking, come on. <laughs> Plot-wise, the you excite me number. Mm. That's the point at which uh, our dashing Air Force chap first becomes besotted with Roz, isn't it, during that song? Yeah. So it has some significance. (laughs) And then he has the good fortune to be in the theatre watching that, just as Hitler drops bombs on the theatre. And they all have to go down to the stage, underneath the stage, to shelter from the Blitz. And that's when he gets to talk to her for the first time, which is um, handy. Handy. Good to have a few bombs drop on your head. I'll try that in the future. It's a Rita Hayworth vehicle, but does it work as a Rita Hayworth vehicle? Does she is she at her best? No, this is very very weak. It's, it's, her her character is nothing. She just literally she's there to sing and dance, fall in love, and that's it. There's, there's no there's just nothing to her. She's just paper thin. Yeah, I think the thing about the, Rita Hayworth in this is big stars like her. Big sex symbols like her, they they ooze something. There's that you know star quality charisma, whatever you call it, and it kind of just comes out the screen at you. Certainly does in Gilda, which is her, I think the film she did after this, quite soon after this. But for some reason, it doesn't happen in this. And I was wondering also, I wonder if it's because it's she looks weird in that Technicolor, weirdly painted. I found myself thinking. 
I've seen you be much more vivacious and... Mm. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. There's a, there's a, a musical number, actually, where it's her and Janet Blair, and they're doing the whole thing in a, like a military tent in their pyjamas. Yeah. And it's like a weird bodysuit kind of thing. She's there dancing in her underwear, basically, and Which it, just, be a it good should thing. have been... Well, you know, usually, I mean, hand, with the right director and the right sort of staging and stuff, you'd be going, "Oh my god, that that one is for the ages," you know. But it's it's just another one. It's just another one of these moments in the film that sort of goes for something and fails. Are you ready, Maestro? Let's torture the customers. Xylophone man, the the xylophone moment at the windmill. They did actually have sort of vaudeville kind of variety type acts in between the big dancing numbers because they had to change the set and costumes mm-hmm. and things so I looked into this I think it's called The Great Waldo in this film um, and it's called Professor yeah. Lamberti and this was yeah. his act the scene in the film is mm-hmm. he gets to go and do his act he's been asking for ages you get the impression he's been asking for ages he he's works sweeping backstage. the floor hasn't yeah. he at the back and, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. and so he says oh stick a stripper on behind him it <laughs> 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 make it more interesting so <laughs> So Rita Hayworth comes in and takes a choker off and fiddles her fingers and the gloves and stuff. Mm. There's quite an annoying turn, I thought, kind of going, ooh. Yeah, I'm wink, sexy. Wink, nudge, nudge to the yeah, audience. Yeah. yeah, aren't I sexy kind of thing. But this is what Professor Lamberti's act was in mm. real life. He would play a bad xylophone and um, a stripper would come on and he'd, as people were cheering the stripper, he would pretend to be encouraged by that cheering. And it's the right, same gag okay. over and over again. Oh, my God, it's bloody painful to watch isn't it yeah the whole you know he keeps you know woo-hoo. with the paper bag and woohoo and he keeps like jumping up in the air and stuff. oh god I, I, that was a real t- test of willpower that was yeah. yeah and it was so bloody long as well it just went on and on well it, the whole thing felt baggy mm. for me it's you get the impression it's supposed to be kind of quick fire banterish dialogue mm. and it's just not it's not a question of speaking it quicker. It's a question of it being written at slightly snappier and edited better. Some somehow, I just, I just lost mm. interest. And yeah, it's, there's ten percent of a good film in there. It's like the Janet Blair character is is really good. That musical number with the newsreel is really good. The love affair between Rita Hayworth and Lee Bowman is just uncomfortable. Really, he basically sleazes his way into. Dating her, he sort of like relentlessly asks her and sort of pressures her until she goes okay then, and then he tries to get her up in his room and, you know, you can tell what he's got on his mind. It's under false pretenses, isn't it? Yeah, like she's warned about it and um, she goes to his apartment anyway, and it turns out to be true. He is just trying to get her into bed, and then they sort of part, and then he comes back and makes some horrible remark about you know we didn't blame you for trying to, and within the same scene she's sort of in his arms again. It's really weird. That is unconvincing. I think. Thing is, when you watch older films, you do have to accept a certain. Yeah, there's a convention to the way love affairs play out. But this, I just found, I found her conversion to liking him or being in love with him, like totally besotted with him. Yeah, was completely it, unconvincing. Like, she she went from like you know I don't want to see you anymore, and then all he did was he turned up and said oh come on, and she went, actually you're right, I will marry you. It's like what? Yeah, and then. I did. I did kind of like the bit with her fa- with his father towards yeah. the end. I thought that was really Could good. Explain what she's happens expect- in that. So, um, well, he's just disappeared, hasn't he? She doesn't know where he is, and she's spoken to his um squadron, and they said, well, you know, they sort of stum about it, and it's all a mystery, and she's assuming that he's 
just sort of cheating on her or something or you know, he's gone off partying or something. In reality, he's actually gone on a secret mission and he's not allowed to tell anyone and they're not allowed to tell her. So she's kind of, you know, at, you know I don't know where he is and I'm worried, but at the same time, I'm worried in case I'm trusting him with my heart and I shouldn't. And then uh, she gets a message saying that his father has come to the theatre and he wants to speak to her. And when she looks out into the audience and he's pointed out to her, she sees that he's wearing a like a, like a vicar's collar and she thinks, oh, well. He's obviously come to to warn me off or pay me off or something. You know, she doesn't want. He looks like he Lord Reith, with... sort of stern and uh, Presbyterian. Yes, and 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 this is when <laughs> this is when you know perfect nights come. Uh, the xyl- the xylophone act happens, and she does her little striptease thing and all this. Stuff. Anyway, she goes back to her dressing room to await his father and uh, his judgment. And he comes in, and he's not there to do that at all. He he tells her that Paul is on a secret mission, and that. She, he shows her this Bible and Paul's marked a passage out about how he wants to marry and it's next to a photo of Rita Hayworth and it turns out that he is actually genuinely in love with her and and the father gives his blessing and he says, you know, I'm really, I really, you know, it's lovely to meet you and um, I really hope you'd be happy and you know, it's lovely to gain a daughter and all this sort of thing and it's a really sweet moment yeah. and then the film kind of wraps itself up very quickly after that. You kind of finally get to the message I think the film was always trying to make which was there are wars going on at home as well as in the air and you know in Europe you know people are fighting to keep morale up which is the whole point of this place this windmill this um, music box whatever you want to call it and she is an essential part of keeping morale up and she's doing just as bigger job as the soldiers on the field i think that bit works um and i i found the the sort of tragic twist at the end i i really thought that was good did you i didn't uh, yeah I, I was quite affected by that i thought i think the message that you're finally given towards the end you know about how even someone like a showgirl has her role to play in the war normal life conti- has to continue in the midst of yeah. bombs raining down, yeah. people still fall in love and you know die and have you know just have, and have nice moments and sad moments and um, mm. no, I think you're right. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't find that tragic ending that all that convincing. I was um, there is this kind of love triangle that turns into a love square, and yeah. then yeah. I, and I was unconvinced and lost track as well. Let's spoil the ending, but um, the. You know, it's, it's fair to say that not everyone in the film makes it out alive, and um, there is a war on. I, there is a war on, after all, and it, I th- I thought the ending was really good. Okay, good. Yeah, but yeah, I think it was one of the redeeming things. That and Florence Bates as well. I thought she was great. Florence Bates plays Mrs. Tolliver or Tolly, mm-hmm. um, as they all refer to her, and she's this. She's kind of Mrs. Henderson, Vivian Van Dam. And the backstage choreographer type people all rolled into one, and she's she's like a um, Lady Bracknell as well. And she's like this. Mm. Does she literally have pans nays, little flicky pans nays, or she looks like she should have those anyway? Probably she she has them in every other film, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'd be forgiven if you're wrong here. Right. Yeah, and she she's um, great. You were saying before that you you're pointing out that she has all these rules, these hard and fast rules oh, that hilarious. she has. But then yeah. it changes the mind. It's um, it's it's the mark of a really badly written script. This isn't a running joke, you know. This is actually, <laughs> this is actually just a really badly written character. Like literally, she comes along, she sees someone audition, she goes, "No thanks," yes, and then someone goes, "Oh, give him a chance." She goes, "Okay," and that's it. 
you know. And then there's one part where um, the dancers say to her, why don't we um, stop going home because we're getting, you know, bombed and, and stuff. Why don't we all stay in the theatre? And she's like, oh, that's a ridiculous idea. You can't do that because, you know, it's impractical. And then someone goes, oh, go on. And she goes, oh, okay then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then these soldiers walk in and say, over. oh, don't stop performing because um, cause she's saying, oh, I want to shut the theatre. And they're like, don't, don't, we need it. Um, and, and she says, oh, oh, all right. <laughs> it's like every single thing in the whole, I don't even know why she's there, but I'm glad she is because she's great. I she her. is good, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what I thought was quite interesting, though, was um, it's directed by Victor Saville, who yeah. who is British, very British. Mm. Um, he directed most of Jesse Matthews' films in the 30s. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he's got a good pedigree of kind of tight comic musicals under his belt. Yeah. But he made this in Hollywood. So I'm not quite sure what goes wrong. I think there is this kind of industry thing in Hollywood, isn't there, where people kind of, t- they get t- chewed up and spat out a little bit and they don't they don't get to fulfil their own... Vision, they get taken over there. Yeah. Apart from people like Hitchcock, who you know, well, it's interesting you mentioned Hitchcock there. Hitchcock and Savile were, you know, friends from like they were very good friends. And I think Savile, I think with Victor Savile, he he was a much better producer than he was a director. But I think when you're a producer and you have artistic ambitions, I think every now and then you think, oh, I think I could do this one. You know, mm. why are we handing the chair to someone? And it seems like that for Victor Savile, because he did produce some amazing films, like you've got Goodbye Mr. Chips, and you've got uh, A Woman's Face with Joan Crawford. That's uh, I think he did he did a lot of good work producing. I think perhaps he... I don't know about his directing career. He doesn't seem like he's ever really, ever really stood out with directing. Yeah. And I think the problem with this film is that there's so many characters in it that um, it's just a juggling act, and some people can do it, and some people can't. And I just don't think this film does it. It's like, you know, why devote 15 minutes to a xylophone act when it's just just the weirdest thing. You watch it and you're just not satisfied. The ending's good and it has a it has a, like a, a thread of something going through it that kind of keeps it a little bit coherent and a little bit, a tiny bit satisfying at the end. You can kind of see what they were going for, but it's it's like a big grand failure. So that is now all the windmill films done and dusted. We will not be returning to the subject of the windmill theatre unless somebody makes another windmill film. However, I'm sure you'd like to know the official Soho Bites order of preference for these films. So here it is. The fourth best windmill film is, I'm afraid, one in which our friend Jill makes a small appearance playing herself. From 1966, it's Secrets of a Windmill Girl. At third place, you've just heard it discussed, from 1949, it's Tonight and Every Night, a big grand failure, according to Adam Roach. In at number two, it's about a national treasure, it stars a national treasure, and it's the only film made this century. From 2005, it's Mrs Henderson Presents, not off, which means in the number one slot is Murder at the Windmill, a slightly shabby but mostly charming comic murder musical mystery from 1949, featuring a very young John Pertwee. My thanks to both guests today, Jill Millard Shapiro and Adam Roach. Jill's book about the windmill, Remembering Reviewdeville, is available to buy online and there are details about it in the show notes, as well as other bits and bobs about the windmill at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Adam's epic new Secret History of Hollywood series about the life of Cary Grant is imminent, and if it's half as good as his previous series, it'll be a corker. He also hosts an online film club every Sunday night, so to find out about all of this, 
Follow him on the Twitters for news and updates on at Movie Histories. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Soho Bites on your favourite podcast provider. There's a handy subscribe button at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Mural Morsels is on the same feed, so you'll get those two, because I was too stingy to fork out for a second feed. And I would love it if you were able to leave a nice review for us in iTunes or wherever else such a task can be undertaken. If you have suggestions for Soho-related features or films to talk about on the show, you can tweet them to at BitesSoho or email us at SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. Soho Bites are produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on original idea by Dr. Jing Young. You can follow Jing and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. Look after yourselves, wear a mask, wash your hands, and all will be well. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>